0: Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week. To explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can
1: help you live better. This is a conversation with David Hansen, CEO of Ultra. Ultra has raised $5 million publicly and David and his partner are funding the project with over 100 employees. Ultra is seeking to become the entertainment platform, building tournaments, crowdfunding, music, movies, et cetera, all with a single login. So effectively, a next generation gaming and entertainment platform built and powered by blockchain. They are still pre-launch. So we talked about the different products they have out there, but game development is very hard. It takes years. They've been working on it for over four years now and have yet to release a product. That's no shame on them. This is what it takes to build a kind of gaming platform of this magnitude. We talked about the single login. So they're filing a patent specifically on this type of single login feature that maintains keys, allows people to reset passwords, but also relying on the blockchain to do so. We talked about what they're going, where they're going in the future. David's background, having built consoles, moved to China, he is one of the most respected and knowledgeable game developers and creators out there. So this is a really special conversation with a special person and I hope you enjoy. Here is David Hansen. All right, David, we're officially live. Thanks for hopping on today. i excited to learn more about you and about Ultra and maybe explore the world a little bit. Uh, why don't we, um, I was gonna say, why don't we kick it off with, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your story. You started Ultra uh, a few years ago. Prior to that, you'd been in gaming for a while. You mentioned you moved to China, uh, lived in China for a while, building console. Had you always, growing up, been interested in gaming and viewed this as something that you'd want to spend your career working on and building and enjoying?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I had this problem where, as soon as you give me a, a video game,s like that's it, I'm gone. Like, <laughs> so when my when my parents would, you know, uh go with me to some friend's place if they had a Game Boy or a Nintendo NES or something like that, that's it. You don't hear me for the rest of the evening. I'm just c- captivated by it. So for sure, uh, like y- you know, I've been destined for you know what I'm doing right now. Um, it's a real, it's truly a passion and it's something that has always drawn me like really deep inside. Um, I really like, you know, video games, um, and the video game industry as as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
1: What is it about it? Do you feel, uh, I I dabbled in video games, but haven't really played much after my mid twenties. Do Do you feel like it's a, uh. Certainly, people refer to things like game mechanics or game theory, and they tend to be, in my opinion, words that get thrown around to describe really maybe complex or difficult to describe psychological or conscious uh, states that we get into. Do you, do you feel like the the reason why games have become more interesting over time is that they increasingly... Engage our sense of creativity and flow. Um, I'm curious if you have a take on this as to what the what's happening in the world of gaming as far as like what are what are games offering people that makes them so engaging?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, it's really. I think it's about an alternate reality, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's very interesting for people. That have creativity, you know, um, or, you know, people that don't have creativity either ways. This is a real, um, another way of perceiving the world. Um, but also another way of, and it's just another world with different rules, with different sets of parameters. Um, and I, I think games or, Entertainment is something that is very deep into the human, you know, um, desires. Like you, you can, you can find games, you know, thousands of years old. Um, and it's just a way to entertain. And it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a way to challenge yourself. Um, and I, I think humans like to challenge themselves and like to challenge other people. Um, and at the same time, so that's one thing. And then there's also, you know, knowledge or storytelling is also something that has always existed. And it's just another way of telling a story. It's a more, you know, interactive way of telling a story. Um, even if the story is really, really simple, you're participating in it. Um, And some of them are extremely deep and they're maybe overwhelming for some players uh but they are an incredible delight for some others um so i i think games are something that fundamentally all humans some you know in some ways like it's just a new medium um it's digital and this enables m- million of other things that would be otherwise impossible it's kind of like I sometimes I I'm thinking about you know you know game development. It's really it's magic, you know. It's like yeah. you think about, hey, you know what? I'm gonna do that and that, and you do it. And oh, and then it's gonna you know throw lasers and you know there's gonna be particles and the guy's gonna fly. You do it, <laughs> and it's uh and that's that's what I think is like amazing about video games is it's it's actually magic in a box. Yeah. Um, and that's why I, I think it's so, uh, you know,
1: captivating people. Yeah, not to, uh, you know, not to inflate you too much, but it almost seems like the closest analogy to if you think of God as, as a intelligence that designs a world, a game developer is designing a world from their own imagination and their own creativity to structure Absolutely. a set of rules. It's like, Man, that's kind of trippy when you really think about that. Uh, how does the typically throughout history game development has looked? I would, I would imagine and feel free to tell me if this is wrong or add context, but the, the overarching story has been, uh, board games, maybe simple interactive games like a tag or something that people can do without any tools or any, anything. And then you have kind of intellectual games where I'm, you know, uh, Asking you a question, you're answering, there's that that category of games. Then we introduce uh, through board games, I think there's a correlation into the digital world where in where computer programmers are producing games, early Atari, Pong, Pac-Man, all those kind of games. And then from there, you have the specialization of the consoles, Xbox, PlayStation, all the game companies build on top of those platforms, and then PC as well, and now blockchain. Is that is that roughly the arc of gaming that you see, and that makes sense to you?
2: Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Um, it's there's definitely an evolution, um, but I would I would put still a difference. Um, in mediums so i think first there's a medium and then within that medium there's its own evolution um and then like for example board games um you know today's board games are like way more advanced and i would even say fun to play than you know games 15 years ago um but they're really their own genre. And then you have another medium, which is, for example, the, you know, PC or console, um, or mobile and they have their own evolution. And what's interesting is that you have crossover from one medium to another. Um, for example, a lot of mechanics and kind of like systems, um, from the game industry kind of like, trickle down in the board games today. So board games are so much more sophisticated than before, where you need to count, you know, certain, you know, units of something and, you know, s- sometimes it's engaged, sometimes it's not engaged or, you know, you're, these are mechanics that would have been, you know, a completely crazy um, 15, 20 years ago. And that's also, you know, why I think board games are still so popular and even growing in popularity pa- past years because suddenly instead of just rolling the dice and then, you know, saying who's first to reach, you know, the angle, now you actually have control over the game. You have decisions to take. And this is something that I think... Um, you know, when you look at them, it's really, it is a lot of things that I feel come from the game industry where, you know, it's much less about randomness and more about control, but still
1: there is some level of randomness. Um, yeah. How, how deep have you researched, uh, game theory and game development? Cause as you say, the, the, element of randomness when I think of when I think of a good game, and I, I certainly haven't gone deep on this, but enough so to understand that if you like here here are the boundary conditions. If a game is, say you're throwing a, a ring around a a pole. If you're too close and the percentage of success is too high, you get bored. If it's too far away and you can't get it enough, Then you become uninspired. It's too hard. You get discouraged and frustrated and you stop playing. And so there's a, there's a balance there of challenge. So that's one, that's one like dynamic. Then there is the element of chance. It it can't be a hundred percent. It can, I guess you could have a game like chess where everything is visible. Um, but that it seems like. It seems like randomness is a, a part of a lot of successful games intentionally. I think board games like Settlers of Catan, the board game, which is popular, built, I think, in Germany, and they roll the dice. And the dice seem to be a key part of so many board games. But then there's also strategy, and then there's the interplay between the players. So those, it's like the the, the randomness, the interplay between the players, and then the strategy seem to dance together as high-level themes in most games. But there's always exceptions, right? Like chess to be is super popular, but there's no there's no luck in it, really. There's no random right. component to it. Yeah. Yeah,
2: so I think um, randomness is um, something you can use to make the game more accessible. Um, it's a tool. Um, and so... If, for example, if you, if, and there are some games where it's actually, um, for game designers or people that make game, it's very obvious. So for example, um, a game like, let's say Mario, Mario Kart, um, it's very often the last or the people that are at the, at the tail end uh, end up winning. And that's because, um, the game designer mario they look at games like okay it's a family game it's not really really about who earns it but it's more about you know we want to make everybody winning and so because there's these things that you pick up you you know while you're driving and there's this element of randomness the randomness is not that random they're actually looking at kind of like you know, where you are, and then there's, uh, you know, some level of flexibility and randomness. But if you're on the b- bottom, they will more likely give you good stuff. And that might make you, that still give you a chance of winning. Um, and so that's kind of like how they balance, you know, the game, because what you, what you want is at the end of the game, uh, at the end of the day, you want the game to be accessible in some cases. Um, but then on, In other cases, you want to have the game really, really hard because you're addressing yourself to another, you know, type of player and they want something really hard. You know, like, you know, there's a series of games which are, which would drive a lot of people crazy or just simply they would try 10 seconds and then say, no, that's not for me because it's just too hard. But some people, they, they really love that. And so the level of randomness or the level of skills is really a kind of like um it's a it's a game design decision and it's really a toolbox like what kind of people are you addressing and this is where it gets really interesting because it's kind of there's a science aspect behind the whole thing like bef- i i think initially with with the game industry i think people used to kind of like have an ID and then do it um, and then they were like really small teams, like by either alone, two, three people, and they would make games that would be, you know, sort of the only games out there. Um, and, but over time, you know, when the, the industry really developed, um, the guy that would actually just do something throw it out there and see how people react, you know, sort of disappeared. And now it's more like, okay, we're going to do this type of genre, we're going to target this type of user. And you know, you know what you have to do. Like, okay, it's a kid's game. So we know it's going to be because before it's like, yeah, it's a kid's game, but it's crazy difficult. So it's not really a kid's game. You You wanted to do a kid's game, maybe you put, you know, teddy bears in it. But really, it's impossible to play for a kid. Uh, and now we, we're, we're at the stage where we understand kind of like, um, I shouldn't say the science, but the art around it because games are very, very subjective. There, there, there's no, you know, mathematical formula that will give you, a, you know, the exact outcome. Everything is very, you know, kind of like gut feeding and then it's a whole and, but, but, but people get to better today at having this gut feeling, okay, this is going to be for that, we're going to do this and that. And, and and the rules and the level of randomness you put in place are kind of like strategically put in place.
1: Mm, Yeah, I would imagine things like how much backstory, how much backstory do you need to give a player to make them engaged in the overarching narrative. So I'm, I'm picturing some of the most complex games being, you know, a quite a lengthy tutorial or intro where it's like you have a story you read the story you're in this planet you have this mission you have the struggle and after all of that then you start gameplay or you choose a character and start gameplay whereas if you're a simpler player it's like choose a car enter the race start you don't need complex narratives to get into it and that <clears throat> it's kind of interesting that you Flirt between this idea of art and science. I think you can, quanti- you can quantify parts of gaming. You can say uh, how quickly do we want to allow the user to engage in the actual gameplay. Uh, so there's a time component to there. You know, the longer, the more complex it may be. Right. How how sophisticated are the character development? Um, is it? So there must be kind of this matrix where you're breaking down. Uh, certainly, the style of player, multi multiplayer uh, racing game. You know those are pretty objectively quantifiable st- gameplay styles. And then the art, I feel, comes into once you understand what quadrant you're in or what component you're in. Then it's like, okay, what is the dragon going to look like? What is it? What's the story going to be? Um, and you need both, right? You need the art and the right. science together. You need to understand both how the structure of the game is designed to target your audience but then also the interesting creative storytelling and graphics that make it engaging for for the right person when you have the right person um, it's interesting uh, how what... yeah yeah absolutely
2: forward. yeah did you want yeah, to add to anything? so I like yeah so it's it's basically I I see a video games I often see video games like snacks, you know, it's kind of like, you know, some days you want one, you know, like a sneaker or, and the other games you want Mm. M&M's other days you want M&M's. So every, every day or every time of the moment you want, you might want something like, Oh, I'm going to take like, Oh, this kind of candy. Cause yeah. But you still the next day you come to the same place and you choose this other thing. Um, that's how I see games, like little snacks that, you know, you, you can consume and, you know, it feels good when you take the right one.
1: In the last 10 years, over 100 billion dollars worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured it's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system and it's also just beautiful. Get started at zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's zengo.com. Code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of 200 or more. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Do you, do you have you interacted with or are you aware of uh Games having a psychological, uh, how to ask this question? Like, is there often people on game development teams that understand the psyche of people? Like, I'm thinking if you understand, if you're just specialized in a game theoretical strategist, you know, if that's your title, you're just in charge of all the things that we're talking about. And then you have the graphic designer, the engineers, the product folks, like how does a typical game team look like if we were to, you know, look at who built some of the more popular games, how many people and maybe mm-hmm. what are the different like categories of people that are required to build something?
2: So I would say the vast majority of teams, um, they don't have somebody particularly in charge of, you know, kind of like. Working on the psychology of people and so on, or at least not in the beginning. And uh, this is maybe something that happens, you know, when a company is mature or when the user base is really exploding and, you know, you start to have, you know, to kind of like optimize the return on investment and like, okay, we can, or maybe to solve a problem, like maybe like, uh, your, your user is a part of the user base is toxic and you need to find ways to change their behavior. But really the vast majority are doing it on a gut feeding basis. Um, and yeah, so you to typically, um, it's initially it starts with the game, um, designers. So they're the ones that, you know, set the rules, set the, the, the larger vision of the game. Like, okay, it's going to be a character. It's going to have, there's going to be a story. You know, he's looking for, you know, his dad and, you know, whatever. Um, but then, and then they set the rules and everything. Um, and then, um, over time, when you make the game, you, you basically, you play it and you improve it. And it's, it's done in a very organic way. Like you try stuff, it doesn't work. You try other stuff and, and it keeps going on and on and on like this, um, up until eventually it's in the public. And then the number one tool um, is basically AB testing. And, and also it depends on what kind of games, because some games is basically like a single player game with a storyline and so on. So there's no more AB testing, like, Oh, we're going to change the story that it's not possible. Like at that moment, that's like absolutely, you know, gut feeling. you know, we're going to do that and that some large companies like Microsoft and so on, what they can do is, um, um, you know, um like market studies, uh, where they will ask questions, or where they would let somebody play the game, and they would uh, get feedback from it. Oh, no, I don't like this. I like that. But, you know, mostly, it's, it would be just, you know, for the vast majority, it's just like gut feeling, okay, I feel this is gonna be great. Or, you know, you know, you play it, you feel it's great. Um, and then for online games, um, that evolve, then it's A, B testing, like, okay, let's see how far people play if, you know, if we give them that story and how f- far people play with that other story and then you see, how oh, that one's better. And then you would, you know, just remove the other one and just keep going forward. But, um, yeah, that's kind of yeah. like, it's, it's, there's, it's a massive, the biggest part is really gut feeling. And that's what's sets aside, you know, really good game designers from, you know, less good game designers is the guys that, you know, know exactly, okay,
1: this is going to be, this is going to work. And then they, they, they have it spot on. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you, I'm curious to ask you about your time in China as a, uh, is it right to say you were a game console architect or what specific, what, let me ask you, why were you in China and what were you doing there?
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I lived, so I'm Belgian. I lived in Belgium, um, you know, and up until I, uh, was something like, um, 20 years old, um, I sold my company and I decided, you know, to make a video game studio and I had a feeling China was the right, you know, way place to go. Um, and probably it was one of the, you know, best major decision I took in my life. Um, it was, you know, really the golden age of China. And so I went there, I, I made a a test video game studio. We made a mobile, um, studio. We made some mobile games We were very successful. And then I kind of upped the, the, the game and, and then I started a, um, PC and console video game studio, um, which got acquired by a company called Kingsoft in China. It's, and Kingso- Kingsoft is kind of like considered the Microsoft of China when it comes to office and different things. And they have a really big arm doing video games. Um, and then when I sold that company, you know, I, you know, I was in the news and, you know, I've been reached out and somebody asked me, Hey, do you want to make a video game console? Cause there's this deal with AMD and yada, yada, yada. You know, long story short, I said, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so we, we started this company. Um, and we made this video game console for the Chinese market with AMD. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's really, um, you know, what I do today is really the consequence of my entire you know, experience, life experience. It's kind of like video games, you know, making them and then video games distributing them on console. And now I'm doing the same on PC. And so I have like this, uh, this experience making games and, you know, releasing games and understanding like the difficulty of, um, you know, making games and releasing them, um, and, and then uh, distributing them. And now I'm kind of like, you know, combining both and having, um, you know, building a solution that game developers can leverage to better publish their game and to, you know, have a higher chance
1: of success uh, publishing their game. Interesting. Well, wow, that must have been a wild ride. Uh, why do consoles exist? If I'm using a Mac or a PC, and my computational power nowadays is amazing. I have a high-gritty uh, video graphics card. Are PCs kind of a, a relic of the past in terms of the specialization of the chips and the the, the computer graphics card and everything else that goes into a console? Do you? I, I'm curious. It, I imagine you would agree that that's why they came about: PlayStation, Xbox, the others. Nintendo, Sony, um, but do you see this as like a bridge to eventually all games just run on your personal computer? So I
2: think um, there's, there's been multiple reasons why this happened. I think, first of all, um, console existed because people didn't have PCs initially. That's number one. And number two, um, console graphics computing, um, units were really designed for video games in a very particular way. Um, and so you could squeeze out, um, out of the hardware better performance than what you could do on PC. And the thing is on PC, um, there are so many different hardware vendors that make graphic cards and graphic chips and so on. And so, um, it was complicated to optimize games and to really squeeze the power out of, 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 of these chips. And so it made a lot of sense back in the time to actually have a console where you had the single chip to support and then developers could, you know, work on that. And then the console itself was cheap. Um, and so it, it absolutely made sense, um, the other thing, uh, but, but today, um, this doesn't make sense anymore. Um, wh- I mean, this particular rationale, um, and because, um, you know, some time ago, um, AMD was working on a, you know, um, way of allowing applications to communicate directly to the graphic card, so and it was called Mantle, um, and so basically it's it's an API which typically normally you you send a command to the CPU and the CPU processes it and then this talks to the GPU and then there's some back and forth going on, and the idea of Mantle was to get rid of talking to the CPU and t- talking directly to to the graphics. Um, and this is something that happened on console for quite some time already. But then AMD said, well, how about we, you know, make this new type of API, which basically, and they call, they, they like to call it direct to metal access where you, di- you speak directly to the graphic card and then it processes it and it's much, much faster. Um, and so they made this proof of concept essentially that they called Mantle and they were very successful at it when it comes to performance. And then suddenly the, the performance from PC with a similar, you know, GPU, capa, you know, power would be, um, equal because before for PC to have the same performance, you needed actually a much more powerful graphic card to achieve what, you know, PlayStation and Xbox was achieving. But mm-hmm. then, um, you know, they, they made Mantle and what happened is that eventually they they basically donated this technology to Microsoft um and Microsoft made DirectX 11 out of this um and DirectX 11 has this you know ability to compute and to communicate directly to the GPU and and so today you know we can have the same performance as on um, on console um you know, at the same time, also, the, the pace of, you know, GPUs releasing is much higher than the pace of, um, you know, consoles. So it's been already a while that the, the PC world has been more powerful than the console, you know, aspect, which wasn't the case back in the time. So that argument of why console exists is dead. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the the real reason why it still exists um there are two. First is the cost, the price of a console. Um basically it's really, really cheap. They they're selling this console at production cost or even below the production cost. And the idea is that they recoup, you know, the the profits out of them through the you know software and subscription plans and so on, and they're doing fantastically well uh, like this. So you can get hardware that's really, really good for a really low price, um, especially when the console is released. Because eventually, you know, one, two, three, four years later, um, you know, it's already balanced back in the PC and, and has the same price um, um, mm-hmm. like uh, than, than a console. Um, but so that's one. And then the second one is, um, you know, a lot of people don't want to bother, or w- with the complexity of a PC and updating their games, installing Steam or you know other um, distribution platforms, and then having the compatibility issues, updating your graphic tr- drivers, all of that. Like they, you know, they don't have time. They just want. Uh, I want to press uh, the power button and I want to play. Um, and this is, you know, what console games bring to the table. It's really for people who don't understand really well how to use a computer, uh, or don't want to bother using a computer. And then you just, you know, turn it on. Um, yeah. so that's kind of like where, where it is. But on, on this particular aspect, um, I, I find it super, super surprising that if you play today on Xbox or on PlayStation, you end up having to register on different services that are outside of the of the console so, like if you play online games or you know Ubisoft games or you know there's a series of you know publisher that require you to do some stuff out of the console in order to play in the console the game you bought for console and that i find crazy I, it's just mind blowing for me because that they're breaking the whole reason why you want to use a console, which is just I press the button and I, I don't have to do stuff and now they they just brought that in, and <laughs> I think it's very stupid it's very good for us because it basically it becomes again more annoying and cumbersome, which you know kind of like this um particular um argument of saying it's easier and it's less cumbersome it's kind of like
1: fading away lately so, yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> that point in it's particular kind of same seems... I see the the two sides. It seems shocking. Is that, you're saying when you were to open up a console, put in some games, they're saying go on a computer and log in or create an account somewhere elsewhere? Is that what's happening?
2: Yeah. Yeah. They don't ask you to go on a computer, but either you will do it with your controller, which is a nightmare when you need to type your email, password, (laughs) and so on. Um, Or they ask you, hey, go install this app and do that on your phone. And it's just, like crazy. <laughs> like huh. the whole value of the console is to not have to register and do but jump through hoops. That's, the, that's how I see where the value of a console is. Don't jump through hoops, press a button. It works. It's not like this anymore for many games. So, but you know, um, yeah, I won't complain.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's surprised. I would think that they would address that and just have some simple one time, Login and that's it, and it's just portable to every game that you put in there. Or somehow make that simpler, but r- interesting. I so the AMD was the pioneer between this uh, API to the graphics card, this direct to metal, and then like you said, Microsoft took this idea and then ran with it on their own uh, Xbox, and effectively t- today the value prop is is gone. That consoles are more powerful, and it's really just about the specialization and convenience of the consoles, which I understand. I mean, I would, you know, sometimes it's you're, you're located in a different position, like where you do your work on your computer might be different where you want to relax and play a game. And so if it's just set up there, I can see how it makes sense where you just want to sit down on your couch, you're, you're might be in a different position, you're lying down or cheetos whatever it is and you're you're just in a different <laughs> space uh, which I I could see that appeal and certainly the much lower cost of the hardware makes sense but it seems like and this is yeah. obviously what you realized that the blockchain changes not only just the dynamics of how people can play games and track value accumulated in games through tokens but also seemingly the 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 architecture of the hardware and computation. Maybe starting there, what did you see on the trend of distributed uh, computation that led you to believe that there's going to be a significant change in how the computation uh, element of this works with blockchain-related technology?
2: Yeah, so I think... um... I think right now there's a lot of misunderstanding about blockchain technology in the game industry. Um, and I think it's first of all is because the complex, the, the, the technology itself is complex. And more importantly, they're very, very different. Like we speak about blockchain technology, but if you look one blockchain and another one, they can be absolutely different. The, the the fundamental promise of them can be the same, but how they work and, and so on is very different. So and it's I can imagine somebody that's not part of the blockchain or the crypto scene that would hear one story on one side and then something completely contradicting on the other side. So it's very confusing. Um and that's one thing. And then there's been a lot of abuse. Um you know, in many ways in, in, you know, um, scams and so on mm-hmm. in, in the space. So it kind of like scares a lot of people as a result. But at the end of the day, um, I think a company like Ultra, um, you know, will do a lot of good to the space because, um, the way I see blockchain technology of, in games is really sort of, you know, when you access a website, um, and you're a user, do you even care that, that this thing is uses MySQL or PHP or, you know, like, why would you care? You shouldn't care. This is a developer decision, like, mm-hmm. um, either for design, either because it has certain properties that will be useful for providing new type of utility or because it's easy to develop. Like, this is something that should be Decided, you know, strategically, but it shouldn't involve, you know, users. Users should have a user experience that doesn't involve, you know, us having to explain. Wait a minute. You're going to use blockchain technology. So you need to first, you know, sec- generate, you know, a secret key and then you're going to have to secure it. And let me explain you, you know, how it works. You know, you're going to write down a piece of paper, 24 words. <laughs> and then when you're going to need to use it, you're going to need to buy Coins because you know, there's this gas thing, and you know, the more complex you know what you want to do is going to cost right. more, and then and then you need to wait. And like the whole thing is insane. Um,
1: yeah, it's everything and, you just so described, this kind of like it's worse. I mean, from a user's perspective, everything you just described, if I had to write down 24 characters, exactly, in PlayStation game, yeah,
2: exactly. So, so I think, um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding. But then there's also this massive technology, um, like on, like friction, which is similar to kind of like when you think about when we first programmed, you know, application, um, on computers, you know, programming was insane. Like. <laughs> Like today we have this incredibly well thought of programming language that are easy to use and the programming tools and so on. But back then it was insane. And that's kind of like what current blockchain generations are facing. It's insane. And there's tons of limitation. You need to work around, jump through hoops and so on. And so that's kind of like what we're, we're solving. And so I think um, we will do a lot of good to the blockchain space because we will show how blockchain, um, can actually improve user experience and not saying, Oh, you win this thing where you own your assets and so on. B- but then secretly, Oh, but you know, you as a, as a cost, you're going to have to jump through all of these hoops. So we want to say you win this thing, but that's it. There's no negative side to it. Um, and as soon as you're going to have these examples, you know, You're going to have the ability to talk to people and people will try it because at that point, I don't even need to tell you this is a blockchain powered game. I'm just saying you, Hey, play this game. You play the game, you leave the game and then, Oh, wait a minute. In my inventory now, I have a sword. I have this. I have that really, and I can, I can send this in a tournament application or I can use this for as collateral to get a micro loan or yeah, you can. Um, because, you know, you you know, uh, these assets are, you know, self certified, you don't need to talk to us to do whatever you want with it. And that's kind of like the value that everybody's dreaming about in, in blockchain. And so this is, this is, you know, what's going to happen And ultra is one company. Um, there might be other companies that will come, but I think one of the core thing that is super important to be able to achieve that is you need. No onboarding friction. So no, you know, explanation of what blockchain is. Like you want them to register. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't want them to need to learn any new concept like a gas or. So what does that mean? That, that, that means that you need free transactions uh, because, you know, if I send you an NFT because you just played a game and I send it for free for you. And then when you want to set it for sale, you need to pay something you know, I'm going to have to explain you why you need to pay something. And then also you're going to have to buy this coin somewhere. So what we're doing is really solving these problems. Like I I can send you, uh, like you can register an account on Ultra right now. First first of all, you're not going to even know this is blockchain. The second thing is I can send you an NFT and you can set it for sale on the blockchain without any coin or anything. You're just going to say, I want to, you know, sell it for, you know, $100 and that's it. And at one point, boom, you're going to get the money. And that's, and that's, that's, you know, what we should have had, you know, all along in, in the blockchain space. That the only thing is to achieve that. It's really, really hard. Um, and you know, every generation, there's this extra improvement, but you know, we, we identified like five or six check boxes that you need to fill. To enable um, true access to a mainstream audience. And if you, re- if you check them all except one, it doesn't matter which one you don't check, you can't go mainstream.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, because each of them are like they, they contribute to providing a user experience which is similar to you know using Twitter, Facebook, you know whatever. and you want that. you, you want the same user experience.
1: And you're talking about specifically <clears throat> enter your email, maybe first name, last name, enter a password, you're good to go. That that kind of experience, which would be familiar to people compared to That's it. the kind of That's experience when I, yeah, it, it, the, other, the alternative experience would be uh, sign up for this crypto tool, enter your, get your passport, scan it, do KYC, write down this this. Uh, 24 character or some encrypted hash store that and then explain never lose it (laughs) right never lose it right uh okay so you say that to a kid you know (laughs) so you solve this problem which is you onboard people i imagine there's some way to do that in a is it I mean how do you solve that maybe it's worth talking about a little bit um are you centralizing this in a database that you're maintaining where you have people's cryptographic keys and then associated those with the login accounts?
2: Yeah, so um, we we actually work on a patent on this. Um, so I can't explain you the exact details, but I can tell you the properties. The first property is... Um, it's a non-custodial solution, meaning we do not hold anybody's keys. Okay. Um, it's a decentralized solution, meaning we cannot, you know, unilaterally try to recover your keys. Not possible. Um, and it makes use of a very unique property of our blockchain, which is the ability, um, to change a user's keys. So on, on typical blockchains, you have uh, a key pair, which is basically, um, you know, your secret key and your public key and your public key is really stored on the blockchain. And then, and then your secret key is really the key to mm-hmm. decide what you want to do with that account. Um, on Ultra, you, you actually have an account structure. So you have, for example, there's the David blockchain account. And literally could be called David. Like I can sell you, I can ask you, hey, send me some coin. You ask me what's the address, I can tell you, David. Okay. For example. Um, And and that would be
1: that that just one. That that would be like an index. That's just the account. Right. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. And then to manage that account, I can have one or more keys. And these keys, I can add and remove and replace them at any time. So for let's assume I only have one key. What I can do is I can send to the blockchain and I can say, hey, um, you know, I want to change my key. This is my new key. Boom, I changed the key. But my assets are still in my account. And I can also have multiple keys and, you know, have different permission for each key and so on. So I can say this one can do that, that other key can only move NFTs, this other one can only do that. I can be very creative. And also I can have, let's say, five keys and then I can give one the secret key to you and another. And then I can say, well, each key has a w- weight of one fifth. And to sign any transaction for this account, you need three of the five keys, for example. So it's a very powerful, very, very powerful um account structure and um and this can be used to recover your keys. So we have a smart contract on the blockchain, which is part of our our system smart contracts, which you can talk to when you want to recover your keys. And then there's this process which we will describe in an article that, um once we we're granted our patent, which will basically recover your key. So you are the ones that, the person that recover your key. Um, and and to this key recovery mechanism, what is super, super important um, and which is a major quality of our recovery mechanism is that when you create your account, when you are onboarded on Ultra, we don't need to explain you anything about how you're going to have to or steps you need to do right now um to be able to recover later ne- so neither we have to tell you how you're going to have to recover it later so basically it's really when you need it that you're going through a step by st- step you know kind of like uh you know um w- like a workflow and then at the end boom you got your keys um and so that's kind of like the the, the something that really really is needed in the blockchain space to Really check. One, that's one of the boxes that you want to check to be able to address
1: a mainstream audience. Mm. So it sounds like when people sign up, maybe they don't have their private key yet, but then when they make a transfer, or they get some sort of digital property that's associated with a, uh, a token, like an NFT. Not really. Oh. Not really.
2: As, soo- as soon as you register your account on Ultra, and as soon as you're logged in for the first time with your, you know, Classical ultra account. So there's two things. There's ultra, the platform mm-hmm. account, uh, which is, you know, similar to YouTube or Twitter account, or whatever. And then there's your blockchain account. There are two different things, but as soon as you log in ultra, your computer will generate a key pair that we don't know. We never will ever know what it is. And then you provide us the public key and then the key, the account will be created and then your secret key is then protected in a particular way, which you can later recover. But so that's kind of like what is really, really important and really powerful with Ultra's app ecosystem is um, this ability to have the best of both worlds. Like you actually generate your keys on your computer, but the account recovery solution is very similar to and like uh, what people are used to. And so so because some blockchain services what they do is they say yeah we're blockchain service but they really hold your keys. And th- and that's kind of that's very wrong in blockchain. You that's go- it goes against what blockchain is all about and also not just you know going against kind of like the philosophy and the whole thing about being, you know, self um you know, have like having the custody of your assets and so on, but also it's very stupid because, um, it, it, it limits yourself from opening, um, access to all kinds of, you know, third party apps that, you know, make use of your blockchain. Like today, somebody can make a decentralized app. They can publish it in ultra and. Anybody can use it because they own their keys. They can sign their own transactions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you, if I don't own the key, I need to actually ask the guy, hey, do you want to sign this transaction? If they would even do it, because typically they don't do that. They just say, at one point, if you want your asset, give me the address and I'm going to send them to you. Um, but in the meantime, we're doing everything on your behalf. And if one day they get
1: hacked, you know, you're know, you done with your assets. Uh is this a, is this an app I would download or is it web based? Is it be a download onto my PC, right?
2: Yeah. So Ultra has a um, client you download on your PC, um, and um, you access all the apps from within Ultra. Now, um, very soon you will be able to access the apps outside of Ultra, just like you do today with any other blockchain. So we're working on some tech that will allow anybody to do that. And is this patent? So the app can coexist both in
1: and outside of Ultra. It, it, is this um, what you just described, the login and key maintenance process? Is this a big deal? Is this a big deal for you guys to have built this? I guess I'm asking, was this a big part of where you spent your time over the last few years? And... um how is and why do the patent why why bother with the patent why not just say this is what we're doing and build build a similar thing if you want yeah. to but yeah
2: yeah so i think um for sure this is a major aspect of what we do because it it solves a problem that everybody's trying to solve um, so it is a big big deal for us um, and we spend a lot of time and prior to this design, we've had other designs and, you know, we, we kept iterating and then we, 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 you know, ended up with this one, which I think is fantastic. Um, and then when it comes to the patent, um, I think one of the reasons why, um, we have this patent is simply because... We see a lot of people patenting a lot of stuff. And for us, it's important to kind of like, um, gear up, uh, because maybe one day somebody's going to claim, Hey, you're infringing my patent. And then we might be in a position to say, Hey, you too. Um, and that's kind of like how it works. Um, that, you know, it happened with, you know, the phone wars um and then we saw you know Motorola being purchased just because they had the patent which allowed you know to find an agreement between each other and so it's kind of like this like we're we're a small company but we y- you know we we do a lot of innovation and we should protect
1: ourselves from
2: yeah. external nuisance um yeah
1: yeah yeah interesting yeah i don't often hear uh crypto companies patenting nothing wrong with it maybe more should uh, or maybe they just don't have anything worth patenting. That could be tr- true, too. You guys launched the token. There's uh, a lot of people who follow the project. You've raised about $5 million through that token launch, I presume. And I've heard you describe it as an entertainment platform. So you'd have uh, tournaments, you'd have crowdfunding, music movies, all through the single login. Is th- Where is it today? We're recording... Early June, 2022, are is are things out there where people can try it, or is that happening at a certain date, or where where is the how do you measure progress, and where are you on that?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so we we've been in development now um, for about four years, Um, so it's been a really long road. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're about Um, almost a hundred people now. Um, and, um, you know, we built a lot of technology because doing what we want to do can't be done if you just try to solve, for example, the blockchain or the wallet, or like, it's a whole, like, if you want to do it currently, there are no technologies that can do it. So we had to build every piece. So it took a lot of time. Um, and so now we're here, um, we have our app ecosystem kind of framework we call internally ultra OS, which is really a little application you install on ultra, just like you would install steam on, on, on your computer. Sorry. Um, and, um, so that's there. And then the blockchain is working. It's in public, um, like accessible. Um, if you install the client today, you will get access to, cause we, we're an app ecosystem. Uh, a little bit like Android, but for desktop, where you will see, you know, you can, you will be able to choose different apps you want in your app bar. Uh, but right now, we, we, we only have on the public side, we only have Ultra Wallet, which mm-hmm. is our cryptocurrency wallet. But we also have um, the unique marketplace, which is our NFT marketplace, which is in closed beta and will be um, very soon um, published publicly. Um, we also have Ultra Games, which is our game distribution platform, which is similar to Steam. Um, we have the Game Dev Center, which is an application game developer use to publish their game, um, you know, set up their store page, upload their game, manage a different version, and then um, tokenize their games. Because on Ultra, if you buy a game, you're really buying an NFT. And if you own that NFT in your inventory, you can download and play the game. And if you give it away or if you sell it, the game won't be playable anymore. And so um, they they can manage that um, in in the game dev center. Then we have a series of other apps like we have a um, a block Explorer, um, we have a documentation application for game de- uh, game and application developer. We have a SDK. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. Most of them are in closed beta. So market, NFT marketplace is coming um, soon and then will be followed by the um, the game distribution platform. And that's... Oh, and then there's another thing in development. Sorry. There's also um, a tournament platform, uh, which is um, a um, partnership between Ultra and another esports company. And that's also going to be part of ultra
1: sweet. And how many games are available to play today or is that not yet live? Um, yeah, so it's in closed beta, but
2: there's already a bunch of games. Um, so we signed up a hundred and about 170 game developers worldwide. Um, each of these game developers have like 10 games. Some of them have thousands of games, um, and so, um, yeah. So we got we got already a, a you know a bunch of games. All the games that are in the platform right now are the developers that we publicly announced. So there's a, a series of them, but it's a, it's a fraction of the the total amount. And then um, we also have a series of exclusive games. Um, that we, um, uh, you know, that are going to be released on Ultra that will make use of our, of our um, NFT uh, technology, which is also really unique and super convenient for developers. Um, and uh, we, we just announced um, one of them about uh, three weeks ago. And today we just showed the first picture of um, another um, exclusive game uh, that will be released uh, on Ultra, and That's apparently sweet. people seem to be impressed by the quality of.
1: <laughs> yes. Nice, uh-huh. yeah. wait, so we're, we're there, super excited. It sounds like the next couple of weeks or months is when someone could go onto Ultra platform and play that first game when it comes out of beta.
2: Yeah, so the exclusive game, um, has been in developer development for already quite some time, multiple years. Uh, but I don't think it's going to release this year. Um, this said, it is very possible that, um, some, Members of our community will receive some special NFTs, which will grant them access, Ooh. you know, to some cool. you know close beta about this game. So,
1: so do you think of uh, this is an amazingly long road compared to most startups or even crypto companies, where you have to be in development oh, yeah. stage for years? When do you when do you pop the bottle? Like when do you pop in champagne, saying we're here in the world? Is it is it when it clo- when it goes into open beta and there's now games available for people to download the client and play and, like, people are now playing? Is that kind of the moment that you're thinking it you move from, like, close so development? I, I, to... I think
2: it's going to happen before. Mm. Yeah, I think it's going to happen before because the NFT marketplace will be open to mm. the public. Um, and there's going to be a lot of stuff going around it. You know, people will be able to create their own blockchain um games or experiences or nft collections and so on so we're going to you know be able to start growing the the user base very soon um and there's a lot of also cool stuff that we do around that so we're it's, we're not waiting for the ultra games to be fully public to mm-hmm. start you know um
1: you know making some exciting things Sweet, and 100 people and four years is a long time. You raised five million through the token. Have Have you raised other money, or is there other revenue streams to fund the operations of the business?
2: Yeah, so we we had private sales as well. Um, the The five million was a uh, IEO we did on Bitfinex, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so we we're we are really creative on how we, we were funding, um, the company. Um, and, um, yeah, so we're, we're thinking of doing our first equity round because so far, um, something that's very unusual is that we don't have any VC on board. Yeah. Um, Nicholas and myself, um, privately funded the company and then we did, you know, private sales, public sale. And then, you know, we basically, um, have no VCs on board, but mm. as the, as the company, um, you know, is about to launch and the marketing is going to happen. Um, I think, you know, we're going to want to have a lot more dry powder than w- we have today, um, to really be able to capture the world. And so we're, we're, you know, preparing, um, an equity round right now.
1: Sweet. Well, seems like At you had a great. <laughs> yeah, that's all. I mean, to be at, to be this far in the game, it's funny because game development, you have to spend so long. It's not like launch quick, get users, iterate, test, right. it's like <laughs> build for it years is, and then launch. Uh, well, I love the branding. I mean, from what I could see, what I've used, it looks freaking awesome. So I'm sure that's why people are so stoked to have the community and why the coin's been successful and why people are excited to see see the launch. Are you publicly writing, tweeting? Um where where aside from the company Ultra, uh, are you out there? They any profiles or Twitter handles yeah. you want to throw up.
2: Yeah, I, I use Twitter. Um that's kind of like my go to social network, and my Twitter um handle is Le Big L-E-B-I-G-Z-E-R, Le Big Zer. Is <laughs> that a username? What is that?
1: That's a username, yeah. At Le Bigzer oh. is my, my tweet handle. But wh- what's the translation, or wh- where does that name come from?
2: It means, I mean, it's a funny story because, um, so back in the time when you played arcade games, when you would type in your, you know, handle, it would be, um, three letters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, it like on, and on, and then these three letters kind of transposed initially in the original games on computer. And so, you know, I used to have a, a Belgian keyboard and the Belgian keyboard are AZERTY keyboards. So you have a QWERTY keyboard, right? Yeah. But if you think at, um, keyboard, ZER are three letters that are next to each other. And so I would just do, and then I had my thing. That was my, you know, that's yeah. where it came from. It's like
1: an ASD. And F- one day,
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. It was easy, and then it, it was just fun. And then, funny. but eventually, one day when, um, you know, Twitter, I'm uh, oh, sorry, when um, Google announced, like, their Google Gmail um, service, I I tried to register ZR, but of course it was it was taken. And I tried like a lot of things, and then I, I just thought Le Big and it just that's how it stayed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's funny. <So>. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, David, I, I'm stoked to see where you guys go with this. Congrats on all the progress so far, and uh, yeah, wish you nothing but the best, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for having me. See ya. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.